We're in Matthew chapter 18, as you probably know. And you could go ahead and open your Bibles there. We're an important, in an important section of Scripture that talks about our relationships with one another. And this is a section that talks about the church. This is the second time in Matthew in the Gospels where the church is mentioned. We're looking at specifically in verses 15 to 20 now is where we are in Matthew 18. And it's a section that talks about the church. It talks about the gathering of believers, calls us little ones, calls us here disciples of Jesus. And we've been learning about our relationships with one another. We've been learning about our influence on one another. Jesus said in verse 7 that it is necessary that temptations come. The Legacy Standard Bible says it is inevitable. Jesus is very much concerned about the influence of sin on his little ones. He warned about causing one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, verse 6. And last week we began to think about this question, what should we do? What should we do when another believer begins to wander into sin. And we saw that in verses 10 to 14. Sin in this context is anything contrary to the proper path. And it refers to improper actions, improper words, or improper belief. And last week in verses 10 to 14, we saw the Father's heart for those who go astray. The Father's angels are ministering spirits who serve these little ones. The Father is like a shepherd who seeks such a one and He rejoices when they repent and return. And He does not will that one of these little ones perish in verse 14. And so in verses 10 to 14, we saw the Father's love for the disciples of Jesus. The Father cares for them. He loves them. And that same love should impact us. We should also love one another. In verse 10, Jesus said, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. What we said last week was when another believer sins, before we do anything, we need to think about it rightly. We need to not despise one of these little ones. We're to think about these straying ones like the father thinks about them. We're not to despise them, which means not to think down on them. We're not to feel contempt towards them, or to consider them as having little value. Instead, we're to highly value one another like a shepherd values a sheep. And when one of us goes astray, we should pursue that one out of love and compassion for them. We should be concerned for the spiritual welfare of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's how Jesus began to address our thinking. And so now we should be rightly motivated. We love one another and we care for one another. We've said to ourselves, God cares for these little ones, therefore I also am going to care for them. And we have this picture then in our minds of, of the shepherd. The shepherd that pursues the wandering sheep until he finds it and brings it back. And so that's the, the picture in our hearts And we're rightly motivated. Our thoughts have been aligned with God's thoughts. But now the question comes, okay, but what do we actually do? People aren't 
sheep. Even though they're often compared to sheep in Scripture, they're not sheep. We, we get the illustration about the sheep, but, but how do we apply it? <clears throat> what do we actually do when another believer leaves the proper path, either by sinning in word or deed or by wandering away from uh, the truth, wandering away into false beliefs and false doctrines? What do we do? What do we actually do? What does the Lord Jesus want you to do as a fellow disciple when you notice that another brother or sister goes into some kind of sin or error? And that's what our text is going to answer this morning. And actually, it's not going to just answer it this morning, but it's it's likely going to answer it over the next few weeks. We're going to look at verses 15 to 20. And if you've got your Bible there, go ahead and let's, let's look at the text. Let's read Matthew 18 verses 15 to 20. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Jesus here lays out very specifically what we're to do when another believer sins. I called this message, When Another Believer Sins, and then I I started working on it and I I realized this is going to be a a multiple-part series. And so this is When Another Believer Sins, part one. And what we're going to see through this whole section is six commandments from Jesus Christ showing us what to do if another believer sins. We're going to see six commandments from these five verses. And these are six things to do or to try to do when another or if another believer sins. Now we often come to this text and we see it as four steps in the process of church discipline. And there are four steps here. I think that's right to see it that way. There's an escalation each time. If he does not listen, then we're to do something else. But we shouldn't see this as steps of church discipline. The, the whole context and, and the whole purpose here in this section is, is winning this brother back. The whole context is humility and receiving one another in Jesus' name and concern to help another one follow Jesus Christ. We get this so wrong if our goal is, is anything other than restoring a sinning brother or sister. And what Jesus describes here is really the most loving thing that we could do. The most loving thing that we could do is to follow Jesus' advice here and love one another in the way that he lays out. And I, I say we here because this really is a we thing. This isn't the pastor's job. It, it's not, it's not just my job. It's really all of our job to do what Jesus lays out here. And what he lays out here is for every Christian. And if we don't do this, we are sinning ourselves. If we don't do this, we are 
despising the father's little ones. And to return to the shepherding metaphor for a minute, if we don't do this, we are really leaving the sheep to the wolves. Now again, there's six commandments here, but I uh, am only going to get through the first one. And so we're just going to have one outline point today. It's kind of one of those sermons where all of a sudden I realized I'm not getting going to get very far. And the reason for that is because I want this to be very practical. I want you to know exactly what to do when a situation like this arises. I want you to have it very clear in your mind what the Lord would have you do. And so when another believer sins, the first commandment that we're going to look at is that we need to show them their sin. Show them their sin in in the first part of verse 15. And the whole thing here starts in verse 15. If your brother sins against you. And even before that, just if your brother sins. And this applies to a sister as well. This is if another professing believer sins. Sins here is hamartano, and uh, it means I sin, or as we would probably say, to sin. And it, it means to miss the mark, or to fall short of God's holy standard. That's what we're talking about here, if your brother sins. To sins is to break, to sin is to break God's law. It's to do something that God forbids, or it's to not do something that God commands. And in this context, we've, we've learned an important Greek word that, that kind of talks about this. We've learned that Greek word scandalon, which means to cause one to depart from a proper course. And that course could either be a course of belief or a course of action. And we've seen that word many, many times in the context scandalon in verse six. It's translated causes to sin. In verse 7, temptations to sin or temptation. And again, in verses 8 and 9, with that idea of causing somebody to sin. And the sin in question could be anything, but it's assumed here that, that it's something which is keeping the person from this proper course of action. They've gone astray because of the sin, and they need to be brought back. That's what we're talking about here. They've gone astray. They need to be brought back. They're caught in the sin, to use the words of Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1. And, and why don't we go ahead and, and turn over there. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1. Kind of using a different word. It doesn't use the word scandal on there. It doesn't use a, another word from our text. But it says here in Galatians 6, 1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression. And you get that picture of that scandal on the, the Remember, that was a, a trap. And so if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. And so what we're talking about here, if your brother sins, is we're talking about a catching sin or a trapping sin or a sin that seems to be causing the person to stray from God or to stray from Christ, or to stray from godliness, or to stray into sin, or into doctrinal error. And it's important for us to make that distinction. Otherwise, what what we're going to end up with is that we're going to have everyone rebuking everyone for everything. And that's not what Jesus is talking about here. Last week, we went back to Matthew chapter 7. 
And we looked at verses 1 to 6 where we saw that we're not to, to judge one another, we're to help one another. We're to help one another to fully follow Christ and not merely to just sit in judgment on one another. Now our text is not about judging each other, it, it's really about watching out for one another in love. And we've already talked about the humility in the context that, that's the foundation for this whole thing in verses 1 to 4. We don't do this, what Jesus commands here, because we think we're better than anybody. We don't do this because we're, we think we're above somebody else. We're those who receive one another in Jesus' name, verse 5. And we receive the lowliest or the lowest fellow disciple. And one of the things that that means is that we welcome them and we, we give each other room to grow. You see, we're a people that are to show grace to one another. I don't stand over you and, and try to correct all of your faults, and you don't stand over me and try to correct all of my faults. In humility, we bear with others. In humility, we're patient and gracious, and we recognize that we're all growing. And so we don't demand that everyone attain to the, the supposed level that we think we've attained. We recognize that it took years for, for me to develop the convictions and habits that I might have, and it, and it might take years for you to develop those as well. We recognize that each of us have different giftings. You know, you have a gift of mercy that others don't have, and, and they might not recognize the opportunity just for mercy, just as, as you might not recognize the, the need for administration or organization. And so we, we recognize that that we're all growing, that there's, there's room for all of us to grow, and that we all have different giftings. And what I'm saying, or what I'm, I'm trying to say here is that very often in humility, and in grace, and in love, we're going to overlook one another's sins. Very often we won't even notice other sins because we receive them in Jesus' name, and we're seeking to do them good. And we recognize that none of us are utterly like Christ. And in that sense, we all have a lot of sin, don't we? we there's, there's a lot of room to grow in all of us. There's a lot of ways that we're not perfectly like Christ in word and thought and deed. But that's not what this verse is about. This is a sin that has caught the brother or sister. It's a sin that they're not repentant of and likely one that they're continuing in. We're talking about a sin that, according to verse 14, might end in them perishing, or that would lead them away from the Lord in some way. Now the question then comes, well, how do we know the difference between an overlookable sin and one that should be confronted? How do we know the difference? When do we overlook something and when do we talk to the person? When do we do what it says in verse 15? And I've got four things here for you to kind of think about. I think these are things that you could ask yourself if you're wondering, should I talk to this person about this? Should I, should I go to my brother and show him his fault? And the first thing that we want to think about here is, is this an ongoing pattern? Is this an ongoing pattern? Is this a, a continuing thing in the person's life? You know, if it's a, if it's a one-time thing, probably leave it. If it's a, a thing that the person's recognized and repented of, then it's, it's over already. You know, if you're, 
your friend or your spouse is frustrated or discouraged or angry and it's a, a one-time kind of thing, I think we often just overlook it and show grace and love and, and pray for them in that moment and, and we just leave it there. But if it's an ongoing pattern of, of frustration and anger or an ongoing pattern of discouragement and depression, then maybe it's something that we would go and talk to our brother and sister about. So if it's an ongoing pattern, that's number one. Number two, we ask ourselves, is this thing hurting others? Is it hurting others? Is it damaging the relationship between me and this brother and sister? Or is it damaging that brother or sister's relationships? Then it's something that, that we need to talk about. If it's, if it's hurting others in some way, we need to deal with it. Third, is it hurting that person's reputation? Or is it hurting the Lord's reputation? You know, sometimes, you know, everyone else can see our sin except for us. Or let's put it in, in the, the other person. Sometimes, sometimes everyone can see the sin of a brother or sister except for that person themselves. And I, I think of an example maybe of a, somebody who complains at work. And maybe they're not even aware of it and they're just, they're just known as the complainer. And it's starting to hurt that person's reputation. It's starting to even hurt the Lord's reputation. Aren't you saved? Aren't you a Christian? And yet everyone at work knows you as a complainer or as a scoundrel in some way. It's hurting that person and the Lord's reputation. This is something that, that we can't just overlook. Another question to ask yourself when we're thinking about this is, are you able to let it go? Are you able to let it go? If this is a sin between you and another and brother and sister, overlooking is a form of forgiveness and it's a form of, of release then. And so we're, we're able to release that thing and let it go and it doesn't bother us and it's not on our mind, then we can overlook it. But if we're not able to do that, then we need to go and follow the Lord's commandments here and, and have a conversation, have a discussion with our brother and sister. So is there an ongoing pattern? Is it hurting others? Is it hurting that person's or the Lord's reputation? And fourth, are you able to let it go? Now notice that I don't say that this applies only to serious sins. Jesus says, if your brother sins. And so this teaching applies to any sin, and really any sin could be the thing that, that's leading us off the path. Any sin could be a thing that's hurting others or hurting the Lord's reputation. And so this applies to any sin that, that seems to take a brother and sister off of God's good way. The next words in our text involve a, a difficult textual issue. But thankfully, it's one of those textual issues like, like very often happens that it's not going to change anything in our actual interpretation or application of the text. If you have the ESV like, like I do, we're preaching through the ESV, it says, if your brother sins against you. But if you've got a legacy standard Bible this morning or a new American standard Bible, it leaves against you out. And it puts a footnote there that says, later manuscripts add against you. And so the oldest manuscripts of the Greek New Testament don't actually have the words against you. And so this is just if your brother sins and it, it leaves it broad. And it's not about personal sins against you. It's about then it's about any sin. 
On the other hand, many manuscripts, many, many manuscripts from all over the world include against you. They are later manuscripts, but they're very widely distributed. And so it's possible that the words against you were added by a well-meaning scribe to make it align with verse 21, where Peter says, if you look at verse 21, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? And so it's possible that the words against you were added to kind of make our verse kind of align with verse 21. It's also possible that the words were omitted early on and that later in history, the majority of manuscripts corrected the omission. And really, at this point, we can only guess. If it was omitted, perhaps it was done to make verse 15 fit better with the earlier context, which is not about personal sins against me so much as it's about sin in general. And I think we should also notice here that in verses 15 to 20, there's, there's actually nothing about forgiving this sin. And so if it is a sin against me, it's only kind of implied then that I would, I would be forgiving this sin against me. So it seems to fit well that, that the sin in context here is just a, a, a broad sin. It's any sin in our brother, whether it's against me or not. But what makes this even harder to decide is that the words sound the same. And I'm going to try to show you this. The, the words sound the same. And often what would happen is, is the scribes would have one manuscript. And there'd be a, a room full of scribes. And the, the scribes would read from the manuscript. And the room full of scribes would, would write. Now the word sins is hamartese. Okay, hamartese. Against me is ace so it's hamartese ace. And so it sounds so similar that, that ace against me could, could easily be added or, or missed. Hamartese ace. But what makes this not so big a deal, and, and this is just important for us to see, that it, it's really not that big a deal because if we just look at the context, everything leading up to this point has referred to any sin. So that if, even if Jesus gets more specific here and, and he talks about interpersonal sins against me or against one another, we would still be right to apply this broadly. Besides, if, if one of us is in sin, it, it really is a sin against all of us indirectly, right? We are a body. We are members of one another. And when one part of the body is sick, the whole body suffers. When one of us is in sin, it affects all of us indirectly. And I think that's important for us to, to realize. When one of us is in sin, it affects all of us indirectly. And I often think about Achan in Judges chapter 7. Do you guys know about Achan? I want you to turn, uh, I said, I said Judges, but I meant, I meant Joshua chapter 7. So let's go there. Joshua chapter 7. And we need to meet Achan and, and understand what happens here. Now, the Lord had told Israel, under Joshua's leadership, to devote everything that Israel conquered to destruction. Remember, Joshua is leading the people. They've, they've come out of Egypt, but now Joshua is leading them into the promised land. And if you go to Joshua chapter 6, we'll start in verse 
16, a little bit of the way through that verse there, Joshua said to the people, shout, and and this is in, in Jericho, shout, for the Lord has given you the city, and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction. Lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord they shall go into the treasury of the Lord. And so Israel conquered Jericho, as you know, you know the story. In chapter 6 and verse 21, then it says, Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. And so Joshua and Israel conquered Jericho. But chapter 7 then begins on a sad note. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. And because of Achan's secret sin, Israel was defeated then in chapter 7 at Ai. And Joshua prayed and he asked the Lord, what's going on, Lord? Why, why did these little, this little village of Ai kill 36 of our men? And in verse 10, the Lord said to Joshua in answer to his prayer, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things among you. And you can read it for yourself, but they drew lots. And they drew lots by tribe, and then they drew it by household, and then they drew it by each man in the household. And Achan's name was drawn by Lot, and Achan was put to death. If you look at verse 15, And he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire. He and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord, and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. If you jump down to verse 20, Achan answered, and confessed his sin. He says, truly, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. And this is what I did when I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. Then I coveted them and took them and see they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. And so when one Israelite sinned, it brought trouble on the whole nation. One secret sin affected every individual in Israel. And if that's how it worked with Israel, which was a nation, how much more will sin affect us when we are a body of Christ, when we're united together spiritually? 
And I think we can bring this to the level of the local church too. Each local church is a, a reflection of the universal church and we're to be a holy people that reflect our holy God. And when one of us is in sin, it affects us all. And perhaps it would even be that the, the I don't know, that the Lord would, would even limit our usefulness because of some secret sin in our midst. And I often pray and I ask the Lord that, that he would reveal secret sin. I learned that at Grace Life when I, I was praying through Ephesians and I, I prayed through that and a number of secret sins came out. And so I often pray that the Lord would deliver us from those things. But if a secret sin like the sin of Achan can, can wreak havoc in Israel, then how much more would a known sin wreak havoc when it's, it's kind of left to fester in the church? You see, we can't know about secret sins. We don't know how much they're impacting us. The Lord is going to have to deal with those and, and he will deal with those if we are his children and he'll bring them to light. And again, I pray that he does. But we do know about sins that we see and we're to be a holy people. And so when we have a brother or a sister that's in an unrepentant sin, and it isn't something that we can just pray for them about and, and cover in grace and, and, and be patient with them as they grow. The Lord says that we need to show them their sin. And we do that not just for their sake, not just to, to help them because we love them and we don't want them in spiritual danger, but also really for all of our sake, for the sake of the church, for the, the sake of the testimony of the church and the holiness of the church and the usefulness of the church to reach other lost people, we need to do this thing. And that's going to apply again, whether the sin is against us personally or whether our brother sins in general. And so back to our text then and back to our question, what do we do when another believer sins? Well, first of all, Jesus says, go. We go to them. We go to them. Going is the opposite uh, maybe of waiting We don't wait for them to realize it. We don't wait for them to come to us. We go to them. Now, maybe there's a a time of prayer and reflection, and we'll talk about that hopefully later, but, but we go to them. Just like Christ came from heaven for us, he went from heaven. He, in that sense, left heaven. He went, so we go to our brother. Christ took the initiative to reconcile us, and in the same way, like Christ, we go to our brother in sin. And so this going is a very Christ-like thing. We go in love. We go, as we'll see in a moment, we go to win our brother. We go to gain our brother. We go to help them. And we're we're going to have to do something when we go. You have to do something, and so you have to go. That's a command. This is a command of the Lord Jesus Christ, go, but what do we do when we go? It's not go and spend time with them. It's not go and hang out with them. It's not go and be friendly. It's not go and bring them a meal. It's not go and and be mean. It's not go and be harsh with them. But we go, and and in this case, we go with a very specific mission. We go, and according to our text, we tell him his fault, or we tell her her fault. 
Legacy Standard Bible has show him his fault. Now this word, show him his fault, is really one word in the, the, the Greek, show the fault. And it's used 17 times in the New Testament. It's a very important word in, in context like this. And this word is a command as well. It's a command along with go. We go and we do this thing. And, and at the foundational level, this word means to bring something to light or to expose or to set forth. Jesus used the word in John chapter three and verse 20 when he said, everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. And there's our word exposed. It's, it's brought to light. The world doesn't want their sin exposed. The world doesn't want their sin brought to light, but the believer is one who brings his or her sins to the light for forgiveness and brings our sins. We bring our sins to the light for cleansing that we might no longer walk in those things. And from this idea of exposing, there, there comes this specific sense with this word, which is, which is how it's most often used in the, the New Testament. It, it's exposing sin. And so the, the, the word means quote, and I'm quoting from the, um, what's called BDAG, the, the Greek English lexicon of the New Testament. It, here's what the word means. To bring a person to the point of recognizing wrongdoing. To bring a person to the point of recognizing wrongdoing, and it can be translated to convict or to convince someone of something with the sense of, of point something out to someone. That's the idea. Point something out to someone. And in this case, it's their sin. Turn to Titus chapter 1 and verse 9. An elder has to be somebody who can do this thing. And so according to Titus 1.9, he must hold firm the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke, there's our word, to rebuke those who contradict it. And so the word is translated to rebuke here in the sense is that an elder needs to be able to show people where they're wrong in their doctrine. Now, elders must hold firm. They, they must. They must hold firm, sound doctrine. They must teach it rightly, but they also have to be able to convince those who are going against sound doctrine. They have to show them the error of their ways. And so there's this sense of bringing a person to see the error of their sin. And that's what we're to go and do. But the word even has a, a stronger sense, and it's used here again. This is, the, again, um, in that same uh, Greek lexicon, quote, it means to express strong disapproval of someone's action. And it can be translated reprove or correct. And this is where they say 2 Timothy 4 and verse 2 fits. It's just over uh, probably on the next page of your Bible. If you flip over to 2 Timothy 4, 2, Paul, tell Timothy, Paul tells Timothy there, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, and there's our word, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. 
Now, BDAG says that our text, Matthew 18, 15, fits under this definition, where it's to express strong disapproval of someone's action, reprove them. And they also suggest that this translation for our verse, they say, show him his fault while you and him are alone. And all of that, I think, I hope, gives us a pretty clear idea of what we should do. Again, look at Look at the text. You might want to keep your finger right around Titus chapter 1, but go ahead and look back at our text again. It says, if your brother sins, and again, we're not sure if it's against you or not against you, but if your brother sins, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And the text says between you and him alone, and, and so this is to be done privately, and we'll come back to that in a minute. But first, we just want to make sure that we have the idea here. We're to go and we show. We go and we show, and we show the person their sin. We help them see what they might not be seeing. Again, we're often blinded to our own sin. We don't, we don't recognize it. Not always, but, but sometimes we just, we don't recognize what other people see so clearly. And so we go and we show and we reprove or we correct. And we say to our brother, this is not okay, my brother. And we express strong disapproval if necessary. In fact, in one place, and this is where I said, keep your finger in Titus chapter 1. Look over, this word is used in Titus chapter 1 and verse 13. And I, I want you to see this one as well. Titus 1, I'll start reading in verse 12. One of the Cretans a prophet of their own said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply. That's the, our word there. Rebuke them sharply. Show them their sin in this, in this sharp manner that they may be sound in the faith. And that whole section, I find that really strong. I don't know how you feel about that. Cretans, cre, Cretans. The Cretans are always liars. You know, just, you can't broad brush all Cretans like that. Always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. You know, imagine if, if one of us said, you know, if we said one of the Mennonites said, one of the Mennonites said, Mennonites are always, and I'm just going to let you fill in the three blanks in your own minds. Mennonites are always like these things. This is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. And I think we know this, but sometimes we need to be reminded that we come into this world as sinners. And we're estranged from God and we're inclined towards sin. And when we get saved by grace through faith, we are at the same time in that very moment when we're saved, we're born again and we're transformed, we're changed, but we're still in the same body. And the remnants of our flesh remain with us. And there is many, many habits and many, many practices and, and ways of thinking and ways of doing things that need to be changed. And so when we're saved, we're like a babe in Christ. And as babes in Christ, we need to grow into our salvation. We have salvation, but we need to grow into it. And we have much to learn, much to apply. And for the rest of our lives in this world, we're going to con- we're going to continue to recognize and put off sin. And for the rest of our lives in this world, we need to put on Christ-like thinking and practices. 
And there were cultural practices that the Cretans had that needed exposing and they needed censure. Things that they needed to stop doing that they might be sound in the faith. And there are things from our culture and there's things from your culture and there's things from my culture that need to be put off that we may be sound in the faith. And this applies to you and me and every professing believer. And we're to help one another to recognize these things so that we can honor and glorify our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we are to help one another. And so we know what to do. We're to show them their sin. But now we need to talk a little bit about how to do it. And I would recommend that most of the time that we would avoid calling people always liars. I would usually avoid using the word always at any time. I think we need to avoid calling people liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, affirming that that's true about them, even if they do have a lot of room to grow. Even if one of their own people said it first. Most often the rebuke should not be modified by severely or rigorously or sharply as it's translated there in Titus 1. We already saw Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1, which says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, keeping watch or keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Now Galatians 6.1 uses a different word, but it really shows us, I think, the right manner. This is a gentle restoration Gently get them back to their former condition. Gently restore them to how they were before. Restore them to the proper path. In Revelation 3.19, we see this word, show them their fault. And I want you to turn over there with me. Revelation 3.19. And we're thinking here about how do we go about doing this. Jesus says in verse 19 of chapter 3, Those whom I love, I reprove. There's our word. Those whom I love, I I show them their sin. I reprove them. I rebuke them. I correct them. I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Now, earlier in that context, Jesus had said that that church didn't realize their true state. They were blinded to it. And so in verse 17, you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. And so Jesus says to the church, I love you enough to try to show you your true state. I don't want to leave you wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. So I show you your true state and I call you to repent. Again, in verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Now we're not Jesus, obviously. We're not Jesus, and so we don't have infallible knowledge of others' hearts. 
And that means for us that we need to be careful how we approach somebody else. And so let me try to give you some wisdom on this. First of all, what do we do? We're going to go to this person. We love them enough to, to take this step. Well, first of all, get the log out of your own eye. Be a person who's dealing with your own sin first. Now, we can't use this as an excuse not to go. Then we're just breaking another commandment of the Lord. But, but we do need to do what Matthew 7, 4, and 5 says. When it asks this question, how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eyes. And so if we're going to do this, don't be a hypocrite. You can't be walking in a bunch of sins and think that you're going to be this instrument of righteousness and, you know, the, of the Lord in correcting others. And so get the log out of your own eye, deal with your own sin. And when you come then, number two, be humble. Don't see your, 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 your brother's sin as, as this, this log. See it as a speck. Know the corruption of your own heart and don't go thinking that you're better because maybe you don't struggle with that particular sin because you recognize that you also struggle with sins. And so get the log out of your own eye first. Be humble. Thirdly, don't be an accuser of the brethren. Don't be an accuser of the brethren. And what do I mean here? First of all, who is the accuser of the brethren? That's Satan, isn't it? Satan. You know, sometimes we can be hasty and we can jump to conclusions or we can hear things maybe by way of gossip or by of slander and we believe them without first asking about it graciously and gently. And sometimes we think there's a sin when actually there is not a sin. And so don't go reprove your brother sharply for a sin without first asking him about what's happening. Maybe there's a sin, maybe there's not. And sometimes because we don't know a person's heart, we don't have all the information, the the best that we're going to be able to say is, brother, it seems like there's a sin somewhere here. Or something's not right here, brother, and and, and I'm not even sure what it it is. And and unless you tell me more, I, I really can't help you. And this is where we do what, what I've heard called exploratory surgery. And I've, I think I've used that language here before. Exploratory surgery. You go to the brother without accusations and you just go and you ask questions. You go and, and you have a discussion and you see if there's a sin. You don't go in with your finger pointed saying, you are the man. And that's from Nathan to David in 2 Samuel 12, 7. You are the man. And we don't do that unless we're already certain that a sin was committed and we were a witness to it. And so you don't go with a list of accusations. You go and, and have a discussion. Go and, and dialogue about it. Talk about it. And this is all the more the case, I would say, if you believe that this person has sinned against you personally. You can't just say, here's a list of sins that you committed against me. You've got to go and and talk to your brother and help them see if there was a sin and help them see where they've sinned, if they've sinned. And perhaps some of those things on your list aren't actually sins. Maybe they're your preferences, but not necessarily sins. And we don't want to go and accuse people of sin when it's just our preferences, 
And so these are some, some principles on, on how do you go. You first get the log out of your own eye. You be humble. You don't be an accuser. You go and you do exploratory surgery. You go and discuss it. Now, there's one other thing here that's really important, and I, I promised I would get back to it. The text says, between you and him alone. Between you and him alone. And the principle here through this whole section is that we keep this sin as private as possible for as long as possible. Now, this can be hard to do because it's much easier to talk to others about someone's sin than it is to talk with that person. But when we do that, when we talk to others and we don't talk to that person, it's called gossip and slander. And so we should not be talking with people about someone else's sin or someone else's supposed sin. What we should do is go directly to that person. When another believer sins and we come to know about it, we should not talk of it with anyone else except that person. And so you don't go to someone else for wisdom. This is what you don't go to someone else for prayer, which is kind of the sanctified version of gossip and slander. You, you don't do that unless you can somehow keep that person's identity private and you really need wisdom and prayer. I would say you're equipped. If you know of the sin and you're in Christ and you've got the Holy Spirit and you've got the Bible, you can do what Jesus commands you to do in Matthew 18, 15. But if you aren't exactly sure what to do and you do need some wisdom and sometimes I get calls like this, let me show you how to do this. You say, look, I, I think I need to talk to somebody about their sin in a kind of a, a Matthew 18, 15 kind of way. I, 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 gotta, I think I have to have a conversation like this. Could you pray for me? And you just leave it right there. You don't, you don't say what the sin is. You don't say who it is. You just say, would you pray for me? And I think that's okay. Or you could say this, I'm, I'm thinking I need to talk to somebody about a, a Matthew 18, 15, uh, 18, 15 situation. Here's what I'm seeing and, 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 and what do you think about this? Should, should I do it in this case? And, and sometimes you can leave it vague enough that you can get some wisdom without disclosing what's going on. And so you don't need the pastor to do it. You can do this. Now, let me be very clear here. If you think a brother is in sin or has sinned and you talk about it with anyone besides that brother, you are sinning against that brother and against the Lord. And so Jesus is very clear. This is what we must do. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Now, we're going to talk about the rest of verse 15 next week. But for now, let's just... Let's just flip this around. Let's, let's look at this from the other side. What should you do if your brother or sister comes to speak to you about your sin? What should you do? Well, I think first of all, we need to train ourselves to be thankful for a brother or sister who would care enough to come and speak to us about our sin. We need to be thankful that they care. We need to be thankful that they're following the Lord's advice. And I think we would need to hear them out. And I think we would want to try as best as we can to recognize our sin and seek to be conformed to Christ and recognize that there's lots of areas I need to grow and maybe, maybe this brother or sister is, is just the instrument in the Lord's hand that's going to help me see something that I, I haven't seen. 
And so hear them out and, and try to recognize and acknowledge your sin. Thirdly, own anything that you can. If you sinned, then repent and ask forgiveness and, and hallelujah, it's over and it's done. And we'll talk about that more next week. But own anything you can. Fourth, don't make excuses. Don't make excuses. Be humble enough to receive admonition from anybody. You know, sometimes we say, well, can you believe that that sinner would come and talk to me? No, no, no. If, if that person is the lowest brother, we talked about this earlier, right? If that's the lowest brother and sister in Christ, then, then just see them as an angel of God coming to you to help you deal with your sin. And so don't make excuses. Be humble enough to receive admonition from anyone. And again, if it was a sin, if it, if it wasn't a sin, Try to explain the situation without, without being defensive. Now in the end, you might not agree and you, and you might disagree with this brother who comes to you and, and others might need to get involved and we're going to talk about that next time. But for you, you would want to do what you can to be at peace with all people. Now final kind of question is, what do we do if somebody isn't following what Jesus commands in this text? And I think we already know the answer, don't we? If somebody isn't following what Jesus commands in this text, then that would be a sin. And so we would want to go to them. And we would want to try to show them that that, that is a sin. And we might want to show them what Matthew 18.15 says. And so we would, we would go and, and seek to do everything that we've learned this morning in that situation. And so I know we only got through the first point of the sermon, but, but I hope that it's helpful. I hope that that's practical. I hope that you know what to do now in a situation like that. You see, we want to be this kind of church. We want to be a holy church. We want to be what the Lord has made us to be, this, this special people that's zealous for good works, this, this people that's growing in Christ, that's putting off our sin, that's, that's becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. And that means that we love one another to to speak to one another for the good of one another's souls. And so we want to be a church that does this well. You know, I remember at Grace Community Church when I was on staff there as a intern and, and I would be kind of like the first person that if you came to the church for counseling, they would, the, the first kind of line of defense was, was seminary Mike who really didn't know very much at all. But I remember this one guy, he, he was in some kind of a sin, whether it was uh, pornography or adultery or something along those lines. I, I don't quite remember, but, but he came to Grace Community Church and he came to get help because he knew the reputation of Grace Community Church, that it was a church where they would actually help you deal with your sin. They, it was a church where, where I could go and get help to fight against this sin. And that's what we want to be known as. We want to be known as a church where people can come and they can confess their sins and they can be restored, that they can be transformed to be more like Jesus Christ. And that means that we're going to have to do this for one another and we're going to have to do this for others who come, who hear that there's a church where they're not just going to cover it up, they're not just going to put it under the rug, they're going to actually deal with it, they're going to help me to fight this sin and to grow to be like Christ. That's the kind of church that our church wants to be. 
And so we want to be a church that, that practices what our Lord has commanded us here in the first part of Matthew eighteen fifteen. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the clarity that you've given us, that you show us exactly what to do. You, you've shown us how to think about these people that go astray. And now you've even shown us what to do. And Lord, if there's any conversations along these lines that have to happen, even as a result of today's sermon, Lord, I just pray that you would give us the grace and the boldness and the love and the perspective that would would help us to go to another brother and sister. And we pray that you would use us, not just to have these conversations, but to, to actually restore, to actually reconcile, to actually help people put off their sin and be like Christ. Pray that we would be gracious and loving in, in how we do that, Father. But to pray that we would be that kind of church, the, the kind of church that, that you command us to be. And so help us with this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.